this is Ray Tabersky, and I did an interview with Drew Masiak, who is the author of Edmund Burke in America, The Contested Career of the Father of Modern Conservatism, for New Books in Intellectual History. This was a, this is a really fine book uh, by Drew. He wrote about uh, not just Edmund Burke's philosophy, but how his thought was received in the United This is Ray Tabersky, and I did an interview with Drew Masiak, who is the author of Edmund Burke in America, The Contested Career of the Father of Modern Conservatism, for New Books in Intellectual History. This was a, this was a really fine book uh, by Drew. He wrote about uh, not just Edmund Burke's philosophy, but how his thought was received in the United States and how it's been used by a variety of different types of American thinkers, writers, uh, politicians, over the course of American history. So his book begins um, around the time of, of, Bur- of Burke's sort of rise to fame in the, the late uh, 18th century, but he brings the story right up to the present. And uh, the bulk of the book is really in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century uh, with a little bit on um, the post-war era, uh, especially a great chapter on uh, natural law. It's a, it's a really fine book. Uh, the interview was really interesting, and I think, uh, I think listeners to New Books Network and uh, subscribers to uh, yeah, Society of U.S. Intellectual History will find what, uh, what Drew has to say uh, to be really, really good stuff. Hi, Drew. This is New Books Network, and it's really a pleasure to, uh, to have you on the show. So our guest today is Drew Masiak. He is the author of Edmund Burke in America, The Contested Career of the Father of Modern Conservatism. Drew, this was a great, great read, I have to tell you. you. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really well written. It flows uh, very nicely. And I think one of the things that I appreciated most about your book is that it wasn't a contemporary take on American conservatism. You didn't allow the present day to influence uh, all the things that you were talking about when it came to Burke. But what I'd like you to do, is, if you could, is uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, sort of educational background, and, uh, and how you came to this topic and how you began to write the book. Let me just hit the highlights about who I am. Let me sure. give you the, uh, the basic sort of resume details. First of all, I completed my PhD in American history at the University of Rochester in 2005. The dissertation was Edmund Burke and American Civilization, which you might want to think of as the uh, original draft of this book. Right. I then spent the next six consecutive consecutive years teaching uh, U.S. history at two colleges right here in the local Rochester area. I'm originally from the, uh, from Connecticut, but I now live in Rochester, New York. Okay. Uh, the last four years were as a full-time visiting assistant professor, uh, particularly at uh, State University of New York at Geneseo, Great. which is a uh, very excellent school. It's, it's one of the two most academically competitive uh, campuses and it had a lot of great students. It was a great uh, uh, opportunity and a great experience. Uh, unfortunately, due to state budget cuts, that uh, job came to an end, and I decided to begin what I called a uh, uh, self-financed sabbatical to, among other things, uh, get these publication projects that I've been working on finally launched and, and, and on their way. Uh, I suppose I'm generally uh, classifiable as an intellectual historian with a political orientation. Okay. So, like the joke about the guy that it, it was delighted to find that he's been speaking prose all his life, 
I have to say I didn't know I was an intellectual historian in both my master's degree program at Wesleyan University and then again here at Rochester. Other people told me that's what I was. I mean, that's fine. That's an honorable term. Uh, I don't run away from it. But I didn't set out to do that. It just sort of came natural to me. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other thing I would mention um, is I would, would rather not have to mention this, but I think I should. Because I, I think it is relevant about my general approach to what I'm doing. And that is, I think what would distinguish me from the average person that you might be interviewing about their first book based on their dissertation is that I'm quite a bit older than the average person at the usual stage of development, which of course means that I changed careers. Okay. And in fact, I got out of college in the 1970s and had a, a, a quick succession of jobs. But then went back to school, uh, went first to a computer uh, institute at Wesleyan, and later went uh, right after that went to the University of Connecticut and got an MBA in finance. Huh. I then spent the next 10 years in the corporate world in Hartford, Hartford Connecticut. Okay. And I, was, I used to computerize accounting systems and supervise a small uh, unit of, of people who did uh, foreclosure reporting for this giant corporation. And in the 1990s, I went through a career change, uh, went to Wesleyan University and earned a master's degree and then eventually came here to uh, Rochester for the doctoral program. And the reason I think that's important is because although I certainly uh, like to think of myself as someone who can change with the times and yeah. is not frozen you know, in the mud, I do think that it, to some extent all of us are creatures of the era in which we came of age. And uh, for me, that's the 1970s. It was, a, it was a time before this age of fracture that we're in was yeah. really obvious. Yeah. It's a time when kind of looking at things in a more synthetic way, top-down way, uh, a way where sort of government policy and leadership was still central, you know, carried over from the uh, 60s to everyone's mind. And I think that to some extent that informs the way I uh, approached history once I began doing it. That's interesting. I mean, did you uh, did you have a sort of uh, bent in this direction in high school? Uh, I, you know, it's very difficult for me now to remember back that far. Yeah, uh, I, I did not major in uh, history in college. Right. Well, I'll tell you what I was. I, I don't think the species exists anymore. During the 1980s, when I was in the corporate world, I think I was the prototypical example of the uh, that elusive. Uh, general educated reader. <laughs> right, right. I was working doing what I told you I was doing. Yeah. But in my spare time, I just read from, I was not a TV watcher in those okay. days, and I just read a tremendous amount. I was not doing it systematically, but now in retrospect, what I almost exclusively, exclusively was reading was history and biography. So you could, if, if you want to, read back that history. Yeah. What I finally did became, you know, sooner or later I, I decided I wanted to do this myself, and uh, that accounts for the career change. Was there, I mean, were there people that you were reading that uh, that you can remember that had a certain sort of influence on, on how you began to think about a second career? Um, I think that what I did when I, when I read, as I said, mostly history and biography, yeah. was I tended to... Uh, I tended to sort of really presentism in action. Yeah. I, I, I tended to just obviously see the roots of some of the issues of political debate, and by the 80s, the ideological debate that yeah. was beginning to go on, and realize, and I think that also helps you get a little older, you get past the age of 30, 
it's easier to imagine what the world was like before you existed or before you became aware of things. Right. And realize that you were part of a continuum. What was going on at the moment was part of a continuum. Right. And I think that's what, uh, what hooked me into that. So what, what made you choose Rochester? Uh, when I was at Wesleyan, I got a master's degree in social studies with a concentration in American economic history. Okay. And at that time, I was planning to do economic history. In fact, my advisor was actually uh, chair of the economics department. We had to do economic history by then. Uh, and, uh, but kept telling me that really on intellectual historian, my, my master's thesis was on uh, scientific management and the birth of planet, you know, Taylorism. Sure. Great like, stuff. Like rationality to really to everything. Uh, so I got interested in that and I started to, you know, looking at graduate programs in a number of fields, but eventually focused on history. And then as the sort of the second act of that process, I became aware of Rochester. I became aware of uh, Christopher Lash, who, yep. by the way, just died the year I was I was doing that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rob Westbrook and, yeah. and so on, and also some of the people in the past there. So it was one of the uh, places that I applied to, and fortunately I got a full graduate fellowship and uh uh, while I was here, I still intended to pursue, at the beginning, economic history. In fact, I did a year of uh, you know, directed studies with Stan Engerman, who's a famous, yep. uh, famous uh, economic historian here at Rochester. Yep, excellent. But for, for whatever reason, by the time it, it came to putting together a uh, dissertation perspective, I think the intellectual and cultural history climate of the Department of History here at the U of R rubbed off on me enough that uh, I sort of parked the economic business on the side, on, on a siding, which it, it's been there ever since, and uh, went in this direction. Although uh, uh, the birth topic itself really was uh, didn't surface until school fall starts. Okay. I, w- I was wondering, you know, whether people at Rochester, because I, I'm, I know a few of the people that have gone through uh, the PhD program there. Uh, one, uh, you know, that Dave Steigerwald in particular that I've, I've, I'm pretty close to. Were the people there that you worked with that were especially influential on your uh, development? Well, I mean, number one on the list obviously has to be Rob Westbrook, who's okay. my advisor. He's a well-known intellectual historian in his own right, uh, author of John Dewey and American Democracy. Right. And all of that. Uh, uh, we also had, you know, a bunch of graduate students at the time where uh, uh, Rob Vanderlyn, John Summers, yep. uh, here, others who were interested in work that was sort of uh, in the general cluster of what I was interested in. Right. So it was a, it was a very vibrant, if small, uh, you know, intellectual climate there. I think, you know, pound for pound, it stacks up against any place in, in the country. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when it came time to do this, I really was allowed, and I, I've heard horror stories from other uh, people who go through other universities who say they're kind of uh, encouraged or coerced into doing certain type of work. Right. I have to say over here, I really had a carte blanche to do what interested me. Yeah. As long as I could build a, a good case for it. And um, I think that, you know, at the time I began this work project, there was no indication that I, at the time I was either mistakenly or not under the impression that uh, intellectual history itself was sort of in decline in mm-hmm. the field of interest. Certainly the dead white male family branch of it seemed to be. 
Right. Uh, there was the Anglo-American branch that seemed to be this new uh, wave of book, books on American conservatism was not yet apparent. I began this in 1999. Oh, that's interesting. And, okay. And so these new books, there was no sign that they were on the horizon. It's just kind of a fortunate coincidence that by the time, you know, it took six years to do this, and then uh, for a variety of reasons, it took another eight years before it appeared as a book. And during that period of time, both intellectual history has revitalized somewhat, mm-hmm. and uh, this new wave of books on the history of conservatism in America uh, has has realized itself. Uh, there's, uh, I think, also a bit of uh, interest in Burke himself. There's another uh, biography of book that was a book that was published almost the exact time as my book, that hmm. getting a lot of attention. So I. No, I did it because I was interested in it myself, but I do think it is now in sync with some trends that are going on. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean, let me ask you about that a little bit, because as you know, this is for uh, a network that looks at um, academic books, but it's also going to be posted at the Society of U.S. Intellectual History's website. Right. And so where do you see yourself um, among sort of the, the trends in intellectual history right now? I, again, would consider myself a, um, a hybrid of political and intellectual. I guess, you know, there are different ways of, of, of defining uh, intellectual history. Uh, strangely or not, I've never been uh, particularly into philosophy per se. Despite the fact that I once got the only A in a course on philosophy of Plato, that's, that's highly misleading. Uh, uh, the more practical I could see the, uh, the consequences of thought. Yeah. It can be related to policy or the way I see people behaving in the real world, yeah. the more I am interested uh, in it. Yeah. So, uh, number one, I, I don't consider myself uh, you know, a standalone intellectual historian. It's going to be linked to political, like economic, right. or something, or notions of, of leadership. Well, do, you, do you see intellectual history doing that fairly well these days? I mean, is it something that, uh, that maybe people didn't have a... Uh, you know, the best sort of definition for. In fact, it, it does bring together all these streams of thought, the kind of things that you like, and bring together leadership, politics, economics, as well as sort of the history of ideas. I, I think it might be. I think I see some encouraging signs. I, 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 I think it's in the process, and maybe, maybe you disagree with this, if you could chime in, of, of sort of reconstituting itself. I, I do mm-hmm. think that the intellectual history as it existed in, in the heyday of, of assuming it was a heyday, you know, the post-war era, kind of deteriorated uh, after a while. In some ways, it was a victim of, uh, of, of social history, bottom-up history, right. Right. the fragmentation of all kinds of new fields. And then uh, if it is indeed in a, in, a, in a phase of reconstitution right now, which I, I, think, I think and I hope it is, uh, I think there are two questions to be answered. Number one, how influential will it be beyond its own field? I mean, mm-hmm. Historians in general, readers in general, uh, be interested in it, or is it going to be just kind of arguments within the family? And the other one, which I think addresses the question you asked, is exactly what shape it's going to take. I, I honestly can't project that. I think it's still forming. I think another, uh, I mean, one trend I see that my book, again, it goes back to that business about learning that you've been speaking prose. Yeah. I think another uh, way to categorize the particular approach in, in this book which it starts with, uh, I think, uh, Jennifer's uh, American Nietzsche book, which mm-hmm. is an excellent book that's getting a lot of attention, is that I was also, I think, writing reception history 
without knowing about it. Right, and it, yeah, it. absolutely. These, yeah. these Americans were reading Edmund Burke, not the way you and I might dissect him in a purely we're writing a, an article for some political science journal to dissect his thought. They were really consulting him and experiencing him uh, to, to uh, figure out their own situation in America uh, of, of their own time, to help them understand what was going on. And so, therefore, it's not only what Burke says, it's what they think he said. It's reacting to just the name and reputation of Edmund Burke uh, and so on. Yeah. And I think that's uh, what helps link this book to reality. And I think it also maybe differentiates it uh, from the way this may have been written by somebody in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, so that's let's let's jump off from there because it seems to me that uh, you know a good part of this book is is reception history, but it's also uh, reclamation of Burke's legacy and trying to put him into historical context that is not driven by you know David Brooks or even uh, Russell Kirk, but well, a much a yeah a much longer uh, a thread. So could you tell me when you when you finally turned you know the page proofs in? And you were thinking about uh, how to describe uh, what this book was supposed to do with Burke. I mean, how, how would you tell people what you had just done? Uh, what I tell people is this book, although it says an awful lot about Edmund Burke, I mean, the first chapter is about Burke, and then interspersed through the rest of the book is uh, discussion of Burke himself. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, uh, the book is more about America, it's more about American history yeah. than it is about Burke. Yeah. Burke, or that is the response or the reaction to Burke, is really the particular lens that is used. And I think one of the things that this reveals, this story that begins in the 1790s and goes almost to the present, although I would, I would have to say the real tight coverage really extends to the, uh, to the post-war era, the last few decades That's are covered right. more, more likely. That, that was done intentionally. Right. Uh, uh, but one thing it reveals is that there was this contention over American ideals, what type of society, what America was supposed to stand for, uh, what were its virtues, what made it different, what made it exceptional, what type of society or civilization were Americans trying to build. And in general, you can divide that into, again, loosely defined, conservative and liberal camps going back from the beginning. The terms liberal and conservative themselves did not exist in the political context in Burke's day. As you probably know, they date from the, the early 19th century. Right. Uh, and then they changed what, what they actually meant changed on a roughly generational uh, basis. And even at any given in time, given moment in time, they could mean more than one thing. Of course, everyone knows today conservatism we talk about is paleoconservatism, neoconservatism, <laughs> and so on. And you can do the same thing with liberalism. Yeah. Uh, so while the terms themselves are slippery, I think most people, you know, it's, it's like pornography, most people know what conservatism <laughs> is or liberalism is when they I see, see it. it. Yeah. And they're not able to define precisely. Uh, but, you know, there, there are certain predilections about uh, conservatives. Uh, favoring order and stability and tradition and certain things like that. Uh, liberals favoring more uh, uh, innovation and humanitarianism and, and quest for justice and so on. And you can see these things play uh, each other out, uh, play out against each other. That yeah. is. And, and neither one is really definable except in relation to the other. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that this book does. Yeah, I mean, I, there, there were other ways that someone could have covered this liberal conservative right. debate Right. the course of American history, and I happen to use Edmund Burke as the uh, opening in which to do that. Yeah, I think if I, if I can 
if I can add my two cents on this, one of the things I, fa- I found fascinating was that we often get confused when we try to talk about liberal and conservatism because, of course, the words have changed over 200 years, right? The, the, the definitions right. and who gets to be liberal and conservative. But the thing I really liked about your book was that you set up the polls not in the isms, but in the American Revolution and the French Revolution, and you try to uh, to demonstrate how Burke, who lived through both, who wrote about both, who had strong reactions to both, how he tried to parse out what the um, historical lineages of the two revolutions were, how people began to use uh, the revolutions, and what, in a way, the, the memories of the revolutions have been since uh, their time. And that, to me, you know, is sort of like the, the touchstone. It's... it's uh, it's the foundation for almost everything that we talk about uh, in Western political thought, those two sort of pivotal moments, you know. Right, and that, that's why Burke is, is such a good lens to use because he lived through and at least verbally, you know, participated yeah. in both of those events. Yeah. And he, as I say at one point in there, he, while he was neither a liberal nor a conservative by today's definition, right. his, what I call his Whig vision, uh, did contain both proto-liberal and proto-conservative elements in right. it. And then circumstances, the particular issue he was addressing at the time would depend on, uh, would determine which of those two surfaced. If, if he was talking about slavery the, or India, the liberal component, or the American Revolution, yeah. the proto-liberal component tended to dominate. Of course, the French Revolution and some other issues, but most famously the French Revolution, uh, his proto-conservatism, and even uh his reactionaryism, and that's really the the only major issue on which Burke was was really reactionary, and uh, so we can see that whole uh, that whole myriad of responses in Burke, and then as you say, we can see how that plays out with others. And it's interesting interesting to see you know uh, what people pick out of Burke and what they ignore. And right. I think, you know, in, in the cold during the Cold War in the 1950s, his critique of the Jacobins in the French Revolution. Yeah was almost all of Burke, because it yeah. seemed to relate so well to Stalinist communism. Uh, if you go back to the early 19th century, you'll find Emerson or other people talking about Burke, and they barely mention the French Revolution. They just kind of dismiss it. So, you know, it, it's another example of the reception of the nature of that. I mean, people are, are interested in Burke, and they see in him what is relevant to the paradigms of their own yeah. So one of my questions that I had after after finishing the book was, uh, if do you think it's fair to say that the the most significant aspect of Burke are his uh, reactions to the, the American Revolution and the French Revolution and how he saw uh, sort of the imperial legacy in a sense, the, the imperial legacy of the ideas that came out of those revolutions playing out over time, what he thought might happen. I mean, is that what we should be most concerned about when we think about Burke? Uh, it, it's interesting. Imperialism is kind of an interesting subtopic, or colonialism, either you know, in, in regard to Burke. Yeah. Because especially in the 1950s, you know, some conservatives were claiming, or excuse me, in the 1960s, they were claiming that Burke would have been a hawk on the war in Vietnam. Now, that's entirely possible because I'm sure that Burke would have hated communism. Right. But if you look at the Vietnam situation as a neo-colonial uh, drama, right. which is certainly a plausible way of, of looking at it. Right. You, you wonder whether a, a Burke would indeed have a favored American in, intervention. The colonial uh, or imperial issues that surfaced widely uh, during Burke's day, and, and let me 
let me just parenthetically add here, I'd say that I would not limit the important aspects of birth to that because there are many other things in defense, political parties, all kinds of other things okay. that are equally important. But getting back to your question about imperialism, uh, first of all, uh, America. Uh, Burke certainly wanted, that is the North American British colonies, uh, Burke certainly wanted to keep those colonies under the wing of the British Empire. He believed that the colonies were headed for trouble if they separated, he thought they would fight amongst each other without the protection of the British Constitution and the British Empire. America wasn't going to survive. He believed that an experiment with democracy would survive. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. he opposed his own government's harsh policy yeah. toward toward the colonies because he thought they were just misguided. They were depriving the colonists of their own uh, inherited British constitutional rights and so on. Now in England, uh, excuse me, in India, his other big colonial uh, crusade, Burke was a fierce opposition over a a long period of years uh, against the East India Company, especially under Warren Hastings, the government general who tried to impeach. because he thought that India was unjustified, England was unjustifiably exploiting India for, for profit. It was damaging British society and the British constitution as well as raping India. Uh, he thought that India actually had an ancient and venerable and therefore worthy of respect civilization of its own, its own religion, its own hierarchy, its own aristocracy, and all of that. Thinking. And that, uh, you know, uh, in, in both cases, he favored a sort of a lighter and more respectful uh, oversight of those, of those colonies. But he still favored having the British Empire. I mean, he was not like a 20th century anti-colonialist. Uh, he still right. favored the empire with, you know, uh, right. kind of like Winston Churchill did, who was an admirer of Burke. Right. Uh, uh, now, uh, France was... Uh, uh, I think of that more in ideological terms. What, what Burke was concerned of, you know, his most famous work is Reflections on the Revolution of France, which was published in the fall of 1790, and Burke's uh, historical reputation is mostly built, I mean, what he's most famous for, yeah. uh, for better or worse, is his critique of the French Revolution. Uh, and uh, in that, he was not so much worried about France. What he was worried about is that the dangerous ideas right. uh, that underlie uh, the French Revolution might jump the channel and affect England, uh, like you know Great Britain, his his known world, and destroy civilization as he knew it. Yeah, uh, he already saw it beginning to spread. You know, the war already broke out, and he lived long enough to see the beginnings of uh, Napoleon's rise. Died before the you know, the height of the Napoleonic uh, era, but he, he already saw that uh, you know in the works. Burke died in uh, July of seventeen ninety-seven, so he was really afraid. He likened the French Revolution to the Reformation, and he said that just like the Reformation couldn't be confirmed, you know, the the new ideas about religion, salvation by yep. faith or by works, things right. like that, right. uh, couldn't be confined to Germany. If, if they are true there, if these new ideas catch them there, then why aren't they applicable to everywhere else? Yeah. That's what happened with the revolution. That's what happens with the Enlightenment, and, and that could be what's happening with the French Revolution. Yeah, my yeah my uh, <clears throat> my interest in in your characterization of of Burke's uh, sort of relationship to these two revolutions was that uh, you seem to be getting at these sort of the, the fundamental questions that both revolutions asked. And by uh, by Burke asking these these 
almost a particular set of questions in the, uh, on, on both revolutions that happened so close to each other that he was getting at some sort of fundamental source of, of human nature or of, right. of civilization based on a certain type of human nature. And it's something that uh, gets resurrected in different ways after his death, but that it seemed to me you were trying to bring it back to a much fuller contextual reading of those questions. What was it that bothered Burke most especially about the American Revolution, the French Revolution was not uh, what we celebrate or, or what we condemn necessarily these days. You know, it, it's it's not that the French Revolution leads directly to Stalin. You know, I mean, that wasn't what Burke was uh, was sort of fearful of 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 having uh, happen, but that there is something uh, tragic in the sense that people weren't asking particular questions that he thought needed to be asked. Right. And I think in the, I think the way I would differentiate the two is the American revolution. And I, I believe, I mean, this is in some sense uh, accurate to the early stages, part of the, the part of the motivation uh, which Burke saw as more as a restoration yeah. of, of, you know, he saw that what, what, the, what his own government was doing at the time was usurping their authority and, and you know, really depriving uh, Americans of what their natural and British rights were, doing it in a heavy-handed way. Whereas he saw the French Revolution as something of an entirely different spe- species, which is why, by the way, his reflections was a, was a response to a piece by, by, uh, by Christ which linked together the American Revolution of 1776, the British uh, so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688-89, right. and the French Revolution. Burke said was, no, the Glorious Revolution and the American Revolution, not necessarily the American War for Independence, mm-hmm. but those were basically a restoration of uh, traditional constitutional principles. Uh, and they were in, in line with, as you said, right, with, with human nature and the history of that of those particular nations. Yeah. Whereas the French Revolution is something completely different. Yeah. Here you get a, a bunch of speculative philosophers who are trying to just wipe the slate completely clean, uh, the slate of the, the French uh, national history and of human nature, and to try to restart everything new. You know, I mean, they throw out the calendar and right. Throughout religion and briefly turned Notre Dame into a temple of reason and all of that. And you're, what you're trying to do is take some utopian uh, speculative design and impose it on people. And that uh, that conflicts with human nature and with the history of that particular civilization. And that's why it's bound for trouble. So he saw very little relationship between the American Revolution and the Glorious Revolution in America and Britain, respectively, and the French Revolution, which is why in the 1950s, uh, anti-communists made that uh, connection to the French Revolution. They were saying that's what Marxists want to do. Mm-hmm. They want to make people, you know, stifle individual uh, initiative, make everybody be more collectivist, uh, and they want to throw out religion, you know, it's officially atheistic. And, you know, they're only going to be able to do this through force yeah. because it goes against human nature. And what we're seeing happen in Stalinist Russia is what happened during the reign, or at least it's analogous to what happened during the reign of terror in France in the 1790s. Yeah. Okay. I, I find, you know, one of the other big themes that comes out, and I think this will get us, you know, take us away from um, focusing on Burke's view of the French Revolution, was his view of continuity and change. Because I think uh, 
I mean, when you're writing the book, are you responding to to those who see Burke as sort of a, a, you know um, an entrenched, almost uh, arist- aristocratic conservative in a sense yep. that you know yep. here's yep. this guy you know who's so dead to the ideas of change and to the ideas of any kind of democracy, and you know again your your, your portrait of him is is much more complicated. Uh, you know it, it, this is not uh, a guy who. Uh, is going to praise, you know, uh, the, the aristocrats of Downton Abbey simply because they're wealthy, you know. Right. So tell me right. a bit more about how you see um, Burke's image uh, in relation to the to the broader historical understanding of continuity and change, and maybe perhaps in contrast to somebody like Dewey, who has who has been sort of uh, uh, you know seen as a savior in in many ways to uh, to American intellectuals for most of the latter half of the twentieth century. Rider, which is why Dewey is, was particularly hated by the Burkean revivalists <laughs> right, right. of the uh, of the especially those of the National Law School of, of the 1950s yeah. and late 40s, because they saw pragmatism, they saw Dewey as, as someone who uh, threw out the old certainties, and there there are no uh, there are no uh, truths. I think one of the folks can put it exactly. There are no truths, but only you know ambulatory changing truths right. that are used for as long as they work. Once they work anymore, they're thrown out and replaced by new truths. Anyway, and well, their stereotypic view of work would be that work, uh, more or less, as you hinted at in, in your question, opposed all change and was kind of the stick in the bud. Yeah. In fact, work uh, championed quite a bit of change and not necessarily incremental in the terms of, you know, spooning out little teaspoons in right. of change. Sometimes he acknowledged that the changes have to be relatively large. He's got a famous quote, and again, this is a paraphrase, but it's almost exact. He said something like, a state without the means of some change is without the means of its own conservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you, you can't stand, so you have to make minor changes or you're going to far. And then uh, further down, he said something like, he's devoted to two principles. Uh, one is conservation, and the other is correction. Well, yeah, correction means incremental change. Taking it's not revolutionary change. It's not wiping everything out and starting afresh. But it is making change when they changes when they uh, reforms when they need to be made. And again, until the French Revolution, Burke pretty much stood for that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which is something that a lot of his conservative admirers really don't uh, either they don't understand that or know that about him or they choose for polemical reasons to just ignore that side of him. But Burke, you know, was relatively flexible. Now, on the other hand, I have to say he was willing to go so far and, and no farther. As you yourself said, he was not uh, a Democrat the way we, we would use the term today. Uh, he was certainly against authoritarian rule by the king, but he, he favored some type of more uh, oligarchical uh, form of leadership. He thought that uh, popular opinion was very important and that the uh, natural leaders of society uh, should pay close attention to that. Yeah. But that's not the same thing as saying that uh, everyone in Britain or even all the males in Britain should be allowed to vote or in the United States, yeah. for that matter. So on that point, I think I would cite uh, George Bancroft, the Democratic historian of the, uh, you know, back in the uh, Antebellum era, right. who said that he admired Burke a lot, but that it seemed that Burke... Uh, was a, a, a something like uh, he was poised to gaze into futurity, and yet you know very flowerly, yeah. flowerly, uh, flowery language in those days, and yet it was not yet uh, meant to be. You know, it's, 
saw the future, and uh, he just didn't have, in, in his, these are my words, paraphrasing Van Cuff, but he didn't have either the guts or the vision or the Amer- uh, imagination or the confidence to take that leap into the new democratic, egalitarian world uh, that had become the norm yeah. you know, by the era of Jacksonian democracy. Right. So Bruce uh, was uh, a reformer by the standards of the late uh, uh, 18th century, but uh, he, he was willing to go only so far. Okay, so can I bring uh, somebody like Corey Robbins' book into this discussion just a little bit? Have you had it? Have you uh, discussed with him at all his view of Burke and conservatism? Uh, uh, I have not. I did uh, take a look at his book uh, a, a while back, uh, and, and I don't, uh, I don't really recall the specifics. I did send him uh, some information about the book, yeah, uh, but I, I did not get a detailed uh, response. But I know it's, you know, the subtitle is, I believe the subtitle is, uh, I think the book is The Reactionary Mind from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin. Right. Uh, First of all, I'm offended by uh, Perry Sarah Palin, (laughs) Edmund Burke. You can agree with Edmund Burke or not, but, uh, you know, uh, intellectually speaking, Edmund Burke was was a giant uh, compared to to Sarah Palin. But the other thing about Sarah, I I don't want to pick on Sarah Palin either because it's a target. But what I mean is, uh, if you're talking about such a simplistic version of conservatism of Sarah Palin or, or Rush Limbaugh or O'Reilly or, or, or things like that, you're doing injustice even uh, to the conservatism of Burke. Uh, even, even if you want to endorse the conservatism of Burke, it was, it was a much more nuanced uh, and multifaceted and much more flexible. You know, Burke was always defending the uh, British Constitution, but if you look at what he says about it in different, uh, different venues and on different topics, he was very flexible in its interpretation. I mean, he's not a strict constructionist. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what I what I say in the book is that a lot of his uh, conservative or reactionary admirers in the 20th century are really more fundamentalist in outlook than they are conservative in outlook, yeah, yeah. which is exactly not what Kirk was. So would you say that that uh, many – I mean, it seems to me that the, the great critique, and I think Robin brings this out in his book, the great critique of Burke is that at, at his core, uh, he would like to preserve power for an elite that – only he can identify and others will then take up the same sort of cause. You know, they will identify an elite that they would like to keep power for and not extend it beyond that. And they will make up lots of different arguments to, um, uh, to make sure that this is, is, you know, allowed. That that argument is all, is an argument that has been present among uh, left leaning intellectuals for a while. There was a book that was published, I'm going to say 1980, but Mm -hmm. exactly what's close by C.B. McPherson, the, uh, a Canadian uh, political scientist. Okay. I think it's just called Edmund Burke. Yeah. It's a short book, but basically, are you familiar with it? I, I, I'm not. Okay. The, the argument of that book is basically the reason why conservatives like Burke now, you know, circa 1980s, but at the dawn, uh, this was a sort of, in a way, the anticipation of the Reagan Greed is Good decade is that uh, Burke used his uh, arguments to defend the uh, hereditary aristocracy and that order. In his day, and now, circa 1980, conservatives are using that same argument to uh, shore up a new aristocratic order, which is a plutocratic order. In other words, it, it's uh, a uh, this top-down uh, natural aristocracy where right. the common people need to be led uh, uh, is now an economic uh, ascendancy that people want to, uh, you know freeze in place, preserve, and defend, 
and they're using Burke's arguments. They're just shifting which aristocracy, which which natural leaders of society it is. It is no longer the hereditary aristocracy and the responsible gentry. Now it's the uh, the economic elites and their uh, defenders. Yeah. So so I mean so that is a uh, that is a thing that has cropped up from time to time. I mean it, it does have. Just in of itself, it has a surface plausibility. I wouldn't dismiss it outright. I mean, I'm sure some people are doing that, but that really, I think, just turns the whole working philosophy into sort of some cartoon character. I mean, I, I think it's uh, just to leave it at that uh, is, is doing an injustice. And, okay, why is that? You know, especially what? since a lot of the conservatives who praise Burke were not really defenders of the. Uh, of the uh, economic order. I mean, people like Russell Kirk and, and others right. who had more of a cultural uh, approach. Uh, they were against materialism and consumerism and the military-industrial conflict. So, you know, they were not really going out of their way to defend the plutocracy. Well, you, you certainly make a distinction between somebody like Kirk and Hayek uh, yeah. when it came to the, their relationships to Burke. Right. I mean, Hayek was not a Burkean. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, although he was an old... You know, Austrian aristocrat, yeah. I mean, but Burke is a libertarian, economic libertarian conservative. Yeah, uh, and uh, it really his approach is really ahistorical. By the way, I read a lot of Hayek when I was doing my my economic history book years back, and let me just say it has nothing to do with our discussion. But even Hayek is a lot more complicated than people think he okay. is. Okay, okay. Uh, the other thing about Hayek, he writes very great uh, discursive footnotes, yeah. essays, but in and of themselves. But getting back to your question. Uh, there, there couldn't be a wider gulf between Hayek and Kirk, yeah. which is why uh, Hayek himself refused to call himself a conservative. He called himself, you know, like a classical liberal. He was a libertarian, uh, economic liberal, uh, and which is really, a, as I said, a, a historical approach yeah. or a utilitarian approach. Uh, Burke was, I mean, excuse me, Russell Kirk was completely different. Russell Kirk had a much more, uh, much more of a historical continuity. Uh, uh, Certainly, no faith in the kind of rational economic calculation that 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 Hayek had. So the, the two of them, what united them, and what united a lot of conservatives of their generation, was just their opposition to what was then dominant left of center thought. Right. But they were really united more by what they uh, opposed than by what they stood for in terms of the different branches of conservatism. Yeah. Hayek was no Burton. Yeah. Uh, Russell Kirk was. Well, he was, if you uh, buy into a certain version. Right, right. I mean, I think one of the things that I liked about your book, uh, as well as just learning a great deal about uh, about Burke that I, I did not know, is that you have this really nice way of introducing aspects of American history in uh, you know a, a fairly short amount of space, uh, and then you know, Ray, that, that, you know, that is a consequence, both good and bad. Yeah about waiting so long to write your first book. <laughs> you want to put you want to have kill multiple birds with one stone. Yeah. Uh, you end up grazing a lot of the birds maybe. But yeah, there, there were uh, and then by the way by design each individual chapter also had uh, sort of a secondary and tertiary yeah. theme and subject clearly. <laughs> it's supposed to be user transparent. It's not supposed to get in the way. It's just supposed to be there and uh, I I see that you have very perceptively picked that out. Uh, I, I don't know if it's necessarily that obvious to the you know, first-time reader, but yeah, that was that was done on purpose. I did try to put an awful lot in there. Uh, that has both positive and negative uh, 
a consequence. Well, no, I, th- I think it's interesting because it'll set up the discussion that you're about to have with Burke. You know, if it's if it's about American exceptionalism, uh, you know, you give a nice sketch of what we're talking about and what period of, of uh, or what type of American exceptionalism we're going to talk about. If it's uh, if we're talking about progressivism um, and sort of the uh, the Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson uh, ideas right. of, of change, you know, you give a, a sort of a nice summary of you know, so what. What do we need to deal with? What were the questions that, again, Burke would have Burke, – Burke's philosophy or his, his intellectual uh, um, curiosity, what kind of questions does he raise that we need to consider when we, thought, when we think about what aspect of American democracy we're about to, to approach? Right, in those particular times. Like, right, exactly. Summing yeah. up the different parts of it, that, that's exactly right, and, yeah. which is why the issues that uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson addressed were different. Than the ones that you know George Bancroft or Rufus yeah. Choate, Joseph Story or, or John Adams. Yeah, absolutely right. John Adams was you know obsessed with the constitutionalism and, and all of that. So <laughs> there, there were different varieties uh, uh, throughout history, you know, including after the nine eleven attacks. So that is, yeah, that is certainly one of the things I was trying to portray uh, in the book. I mean, so was, yeah. you know, one reason why it took so long to I mean, there was a lot of uh, a lot of things to look at. Oh yeah, no, I. I... <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a history of the United States. I, I mean, I, I'm going out to other things, but they're not going to be a, this with a, a labor-intensive bear. I mean, I'm glad I did it yeah. to produce something of, of, of value, but this particular type of heavy lifting, uh, I think I have one of those in me. Well, can I ask you, I mean, have you had, uh, can you give us a sense of what the reception has been to your book? I don't know. You know, this book has been out for like two months. And uh, as far, I've gotten a lot of, as I'm getting from you, I've gotten a lot of informal uh, you know, uh, positive re- okay. reception. Right. I, I've yet to get negative. I, I wonder if just those people aren't the ones that are gonna are gonna let you know. <laughs> now, uh, the publisher Cornell has gotten uh, many requests from many periodicals for you know, for copies to review and all. As we speak this morning, as far as I know, and I checked with Cornell by uh, uh, by email uh, the day before yesterday, and got a response yesterday. Uh, as far as I know. Uh, there are no reviews published yet on this book. I did get there was a piece in the Financial Times of London uh, two weeks ago mm-hmm. that looked like it was going to be a joint review of my book and Jesse Norman's book on Edmund Burke, but it turned out to be more of a six or eight sentence uh, mention in the middle of a long article rather than an actual okay. review. Yeah. So I'm really still. I mean, the jury is still out. I'm I'm still uh, cautiously optimistic, but I have not yet gotten any. Uh, concrete feedback. Now, there's supposed to be an article um, uh, that's going to appear in the New Yorker either next week or the week after that uh, supposedly uh, considers this book in, in, uh, in, a, in a broader discussion of work. Uh, I have no idea what the uh, yeah. content is going to be of that. Yeah. But I really I can't uh, give you any... Um, I mean, how do you think I feel about that? I, mean, yeah. I, yeah. I want to know more than you do. Yeah, of uh, course. I, I, just, I guess it's too early to really... Um, uh, no. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's fair. I, one of the things that I find interesting. I mean, uh, unlike. I mean, are there are there Burke societies that are going to take this up as, you know, the book that they'll read for the month and they'll have you come in. I mean, uh, when yeah, I when okay. I spoke uh, okay, to Jennifer yeah. Burns about her book on Ayn Rand, she said it was amazing how quickly she became the sort of celebrity among, you know, the the, the Randians. Yes. Okay. There are. And 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 these, and these are kind of spinoffs of uh, Russell Kirk's okay. uh, uh, Institute, including uh, his widow Annette and uh, uh, his brother-in-law Nelson and, and others, and the uh, the Journal of the University Bookman and all that. And uh, I've been in partial contact with those people, and as they 
contact me. Uh, I'm not sure yet. I've been told by a uh, by an intermediary. I'm not going to mention the name mm-hmm. that uh, 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 Nick Kirk has, has has had me looked into. Uh, That's funny. What that means, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that I've been asked to uh, contribute a, a very short, reflective piece on Russell Kirk uh, to the University Bookman. If I could email that off, but maybe for yesterday. Yeah. And uh, supposedly they're going to review the book. Uh, you know, I did that little mini interview for the National Review online, and right. the editor of that said he's reviewing. But I, I, again, to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't appeared yet. But so uh, I, I, it looks like uh, there is some uh, kind of fizzling of action there. I, I'm not exactly sure what what yet it's going to come to. Well, I mean, this has certainly piqued their curiosity. Oh, uh, no doubt. What they're going to do uh, with me or my book? Uh, with that remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah, I was just so I have I have. Uh, I would of, certainly hope that even if they disagree with the take on Kirk, that they at least respect it as a work of scholarship and uh, you know can appreciate oh, no doubt. some of the, the earlier historical points, even if they're going to disagree with uh, you know the, the Cold War interpretation. Of it. Well, it's listen, it's, it's not a, it's not a polemic. I mean, this is this is a, a really uh, well done but study. I tried so. very hard to make you know until I got to the very last chapter where it was just impossible to not right. You know, tip my hand a little bit. I mean, it's, right. there's just no way to do that when you're talking about very recent events. But I tried very hard to right. um, to, uh, to present a fair and balanced, you know, uh, view and, and to make it a work of scholarship well, rather to... than a work of advocacy. Because when I was sending this to publish, I, I in my cover letter, I actually put in bold that this is not a work of conservative advocacy; yeah. it's a work of historical scholarship. Right. Well, then I have to ask you the question. I mean, was uh, the, the the father of modern conservatism. Uh, is that accurate? Is well, he? You know, it is and it isn't. I mean, I, I mean, it is in the sense that if you're going to say, if not birth, then who? Yeah. Because, I mean, there are other names you could throw up there, but, you know, they're not necessarily convincing, you know, on their own. But he's not American yeah, conservatism. conservatism. doesn't have one father the way sort of Marx and Engels, and particularly Marx, <clears throat> was the father of conservatism. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, if, if you're looking for... If you're looking for one name, yeah. I mean, it's not completely off the wall to pick Edmund Burke. And especially because, you know, you have to ask the, the question, number one, uh, to what degree can he be objectively or demonstrably uh, uh, said to be the father of conservatism? And then there's the other question, which is, and again, this is, I guess getting more toward reception history or more toward practicality, if, if we get to a point where so many people see him as yes, the father right. of conservatism, right. It becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy Absolutely. anyway, unless you want to build a case to sort of disprove that. Uh, you know, it, it's not completely uh, errant to say that. I would just say to people, you know, if you want to call Burke the father of conservatism, uh, you know, please get a more uh, uh, detailed and um, uh, more varied understanding of what conservatism can be. Yeah, because he's not the father of American conservatism. That's oh, clear in your book, not. right? Definitely. Kirk, I mean, uh, Burke has almost nothing to do with, uh, for example, what the Republican Party is doing today in the United States, as far as I can tell. Right, or, or even John C. Calhoun, for that matter. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Burke, Burke is not really a father of American conservatism. And where would you say, I mean, in, even though you, you set up sort of the, the, the Thomas Paine-Burke uh, feud there, um, why is it that, that that Burke is then appropriated by certain people in the 19th century 
as someone to be used in America? What is it that's why, why is he allowed in a certain sense, or why is he uh, able to become, in a sense, this great inspiration to American conservatism, even right. if it, he didn't care much about American uh, thought? Right. Again, it depends who you talk about. But if you talk about, for example, the Whigs that I profile in the, in the chapter on the mm-hmm. particularly Edward Everett, uh, uh, Roots, Choke, and, and which is a really, really uh, uh, well done chapter because it's a very complex chapter. Thank you. And, and that one uh, again. That that. That was one of the more labor-intensive. Yeah, definitely. A lot of time it did a Joseph lot of, Story's uh, thought is fascinating. Things that were yeah. related that didn't even appear in the book. This is you've written multiple books, I'm sure, and even most of the people listening to this interview probably are aware that when you write a book, what appears in the book is the tip of the iceberg. Right, you absolutely. Learn, you know, yeah. ten times as much it never gets into the book. But that particular chapter on the Whigs uh, had had an awful lot to it. Uh, one of the one of the common threads is this response to what they saw, I think, as the over-democratization yeah. uh, of, of American society. And also the, what they saw as an excessive uh, severance between American sort of exceptionalist civilization uh, uh, and uh, the Anglo, you know, the British civilization that they were breaking free from. Yeah. And, and they had a, a, you know, some of these people were Anglophiles, I mean, particularly uh, Edward Everett was. And, and they saw Burke as representing a more stable and I would even say aristocratic you know, yeah. tradition that they saw threatened by you know the, the by mob rule in, in a sense. Yeah. And I, I think on a more cultural level in the late nineteenth century, E.L. Dodkin fell in, especially in the yes. second half of, of his career, fell into that same yeah. same trap. So uh, I mean I think that's one reason why these people were not uh, particularly effective in making that argument. And uh, I mean as far as I know, and again, I, I spent a lot of time trying to scan the environment. You never know. This has covered so many years. You know, I'm sure thousands and thousands and thousands of things have been published. But as far as I know, that was never, you know, addressed or developed by anyone before. So uh, there are little hints of it in uh, Daniel Walker, Walker House book on the, uh, on the American Whig. Right. But I mean, nobody, I think, as far as I know, I'm the first person to, to develop it in any, in any detail. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, but again, that also Ray gets back to your earlier question about you know this is a, a contestation over what American ideals are going to be. Yeah. I mean, how different are they going to be from the aristocratic British tradition? How different are, going to, are they going to be from the British constitutional position? Right. Uh, uh, right. And uh, so you know, again, it depends. I, I, sh- I should mention there's, there's a very interesting part of the book that has been cut out. Uh, this book was originally much larger. Uh, it was. Uh, this is only 58% of the original manuscript that, that made it through. Uh, I'm actually glad that Cornell made me do that because it makes it a smaller, more manageable book that's more approachable. It also sells for a, a very reasonable price, so it, it's good. Nevertheless, you know, there are some interesting things that are no longer there, and uh, I think the one I miss the most is that in the uh, late antebellum period, uh, certain writers used Burke, uh, Burke's uh, anti-Jacobin arguments uh, to combat abolitionism and, yeah. you know, saying that, you know, th- this is the kind of radical thought that can, uh, you know, this moralistic radical thought that can cause uh, society to spin out of control and the country to, to come apart and all of that. So, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it disrespects the constitution and, you know, the reading constitutional settlement and all of that business. So that's a, another example of people, you know, appropriating Burke for the arguments of the immediate day. Yeah. So, Let's uh, let's wrap up with uh, one final question, and yeah. I think this is a thing that sort of hangs over all uh, the book uh, overall. Uh, Burke had a really 
fascinating critique of democracy. Right. And, and if democracy, you know, it doesn't end history as we've seen. But if there were uh, a set of questions that Burke wanted people to consider as they move through this, uh, his era of, of uh, democracy and into the future, what were those? What was that set of questions? I, I think that Burke uh, would believe that people needed to always be sure that what the decisions they were making. I mean, I, I'm assuming the question, you know, given given democracy like we have it now, right? What right. would Burke want people to keep in mind when they're making their decisions at the voting booth or whatever? Uh, or, uh, that the decisions that they are going to make are grounded in uh, practical experience and a realistic view of human nature, and also a uh, a realization that we are acting in the moment, we're acting in the present in a way that must be consistent with our past, and we are just part of a continuum, which is what is going to happen uh, in the future. Yeah. So we have to be very careful about what we do. Now, of course, someone can appropriate that and use that to be uh, extremely gun-shy mm-hmm. about you know, making any kind of changes. Right. I mean, you could oppose, say, the civil rights movement by right. giving women the vote or something like that. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you, could, you could go in the opposite direction and, and saying that, you know, the concept of Mormon, like the, the dead hand of our fathers, and, and this is what some of the uh, critics of Burke criticize him. They're claiming that, uh, you know, he, he says we are living in an entail, with an entailed inheritance and all that. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we are bound, uh, you know, there's very little that we can legitimately do at the present moment to, uh, you know, wiggle out of difficulties because, uh, you know, we have to respect to a phenomenal degree uh, what we have inherited. So it's all about where you want to place that um, uh where you want to place the uh, the limits of restraint? Yeah, and 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 I mean, uh, you know, he's certainly against speculative thought, but you know, as we know, uh, radicalism, speculative thought, reform, <laughs> all of those things, moder- uh, moderation, all of those things can often be in the eye of the beholder. Right, and it's very difficult at any moment to know, uh, you know, what you know. Very often, what what people are doing is is defined by their you know, by their opponents, uh, not by the you know everybody. The radicalism of most ideas is is is, is claimed by those who have, who oppose them, oppose them right. which is why I think it makes it very difficult to say. You know, if Edmund Burke were alive in the in the post war era, if you were alive today, exactly what issues? You know, what would you, you know? It's, it's easy yeah. to say he would have hated communism, yeah. uh, but you know. I don't think anybody could say what yeah. Burke would have thought about you know gun control or or uh, stem cell research or um, you know. Lots of things that are uh, on the agenda today: healthcare, Obama, healthcare reform. Yeah, uh, you know, very different. I mean, he certainly thought that uh, society was a community. He did. He was not an uh, an individualist, a libertarian. Uh, so he certainly saw the wisdom of, act, of you know of collective action and of shared responsibility. Now, uh, whether his version of shared responsibility <clears throat> can be painted as uh, this uh, uh, as a humanitarian communal effort. Or whether one uh, wants to contrast it to socialism, you know, that's another question. Yeah. Okay, Drew, this was uh, fascinating. Again, well, thank you. the book is Edmund Burke in America, The Contested Career of the Father of Modern Conservatism. Uh, Drew Masiak, thanks again. Well, thank you, Ray. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Drew Masiak on the New Books Network, New Books Intellectual History. I'm Ray Herbersky. Thanks for listening.